I need a volunteer. No, it's what I think it is. No. Oh, never mind. What is it? All right, I need a volunteer to have a bookmark in Hebrews chapter one, verse seven, and they're going to read that when I say. Sammy, I need a volunteer for Song of Solomon eight six. Sam, who needs one? Sam, you keep your eyes just on that verse. All right, there's going to be a lot of temptation to want to go and read elsewhere in that book. Don't do it. Wow. And then I need a volunteer to read Hebrews chapter twelve twenty eight and twenty nine. Heather, everybody else turn to Psalm eighteen. All right, now here's the thing. If I asked you to read, make sure you put a bookmark there because we're not going to get to some of your verses until later on in the lesson tonight. However the Spirit leads. It's a great answer. It's great. Whatever the Spirit leads. Psalm 18 is where everybody else is going to turn to. We are... What was that? No, yeah, you can turn there. But just keep your place in Hebrews 1-7 for you. We are resuming our study in church history tonight. Last, well, two weeks ago, we took a look at the Dark Ages, which began in Thyatira. The Dark Ages begins roughly 500 A.D., and Thyatira specifically went to about 1000 AD, and tonight we pick up from 1000 AD to 1500 AD. It's what's known as the Midnight of the Dark Ages. And tonight's church period is looking at, it is called Sardis. Now, as we looked at last week, and this is kind of big, and we've kind of been hitting this as a theme, the reason why, from a biblical perspective at least, that this is a period known as the Dark Ages is because of Psalm 119, 130. The entrance of thy words giveth what? Light. It giveth understanding unto the simple. As we spent so long looking at how we got to this point in history where the words of God were stripped from the hands of the common man. Common everyday individuals like you and me. You and me. Sorry, got that backwards weren't allowed to own a Bible. And if there was any copies of the Scriptures found whatsoever, they were stripped from you, and you were severely punished as a result of it. So with the Bible out of the hands of the common man, you now have darkness. You do not have the light of the glorious gospel being shown, not being available for everyone. I love it. The book of Habakkuk, I believe it's chapter 2, verse 2. Just read all of chapter 2, you'll eventually find it. It has this beautiful verse where it says, Make plain the vision coming from God, so that he that readeth may run therewith. When you read this book, it should ignite a fire in you. It should inspire you to want to do something with what you've read, to want to go and tell the entire world with it. Well, if you don't have it, if the vision's not made clear, then it becomes pretty hard to go run and do something with it. So it got me thinking, how on earth... The entrance of thy words giveth light, and light, the words, were taken away. How on earth did God shine light during this dark, dark time? How was there light during the dark ages? How were people still being saved? I thought of Psalm 18. It's a beautiful verse that's here. Can I get a reader for verse 28? Kendall. Um, I have a question. 
podcast, and that's what I would say hi to Renata. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you can. That's you awesome. sure can. Hi, Grandma. Yes, you can. Hi, Grandma. That's awesome. But now you can't read the verse. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. All right. Goodness, this isn't the all request hour. This isn't a radio show. All right. That was for you, Jane. All right. Go ahead and read verse 28. For thou wilt light my candle, the Lord my God will enlighten my darkness. For thou wilt light my candle. I love it. There's a man by the name of A.W. Tozer. Anybody heard that name? He wrote a book called The Pursuit of God. I think he lived around the 1950s or died around the 1950s, but lived in the early 1900s. And he had this phrase. He goes, if my candle is not large, it is but real. When you look at a verse like this, all it takes is just one candle to shine a light. You can be in the darkest room. Anybody ever tried that? Be in the darkest room, no windows whatsoever, whereas when you turn the lights out, it is completely pitch black, and you can't even see your hand in front of your face. Anybody here ever been cave diving before? Spelunking? Yes. Oh, that was kind of funny. We were simpatico. Have you guys ever been in a cave before? Dude, we used to go to camps, like summer camps. As a youth ministry, we'd go down in the hills of West Virginia and the hills of Pennsylvania, and that was one of the activities we'd do. No, no uh, Cedar Point, no, uh, you know, what are those things called? Jet skis. Had a little blank there. No jet skis. We would go stinking into caves, into the deepest, darkest pits of the earth, to the point where literally, if you did not have your helmet light on, you could have your hand right here and not see a thing. But then all it took was just somebody lighting a candle. And you could see the deepest, darkest crevices of the caverns for yards and yards and yards. Thank you. Sorry, feet. That's what light will do. That's what even the tiniest light will do. All it takes is someone just being willing to be like, God, I'm willing to do what you have me to do. I'm willing to go where you want me to go. I'll say what you want me to say. It takes a willing heart to let God just light that candle. It doesn't have to be large. You don't have to be the most boastful speaker. You don't have to be the loudest. You don't have to know the ins and the outs of every single doctrine there is to know in the Bible. All it takes is a willing heart, and God will use that. It starts with a candle. It starts with a willingness to say, God, light my candle. I am willing to do what you want me to do. I don't know what that is, and I feel like I don't really have much to offer. All I have is just this candle, but I'm willing nonetheless to let it shine. So use me where you will. That's how it starts. How did God give light? Was it just through a candle? Well, no goes beyond that because whenever you make a commitment like that to God even if it's just something small and simple God's going to test you on that that's why 1 Peter 1.7 says that the trial or testing of your faith the testing of your commitment unto God being much more precious than of gold that perisheth though it be tried with what? fire might be found in the praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Whatever that commitment is, whatever that candle is that you have, that desire, that willingness to do what God wants you to do, you have that. God's going to put it to the test. And it might cause some pain. It might have some sacrifices. You might lose some friends in the process. But God's going to put that commitment to the test. He's going to put it to the fire and watch that bonfire grow. We'll see that tonight. We're going to see that 
practically through what God was able to do during this time period. So follow along with me. Turn over to Revelation chapter 3. We'll jump into Sardis here. We're going somewhere with this candle theme. Make sure you pay attention. And if any of you forget where your time is going to be or what verse you're supposed to be reading, or if you lost your bookmark, it's up here on the board. For the rest of you, I encourage you to write that down. Sardis, chapter 3. All right, I need six volunteers to read this bad boy. Andy, verse 1. Two, verse 2. Oh, that was perfect. <laughs> I see what you did. Jamie, verse 3. <laughs> you raised your hand exactly at that moment, didn't you? <laughs> All right, Jamie, verse 3. Brandon, verse 4. Verse 4. You had your hand up halfway to itch your face, so you're verse 5. And Ben, did you have your hand up? Yes. He does now. You're verse 6. All right. Uh, Andy, go ahead and kick it off. And unto the angel of the church of Christ in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest and art dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain, that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. Hmm. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Thou hast few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. <laughs> he that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear, let the Spirit say unto the church. All right, Sardis on your outline. Coincidentally, Sardis means red ones. Red ones. And just as we've seen with every single church period, the name supernaturally represents the characteristics of this time period. And oh my, how you'll see that. I've already teased it in the weeks past. What happens during this time, 1,000 to 1,500 A.D.? Some major historical incidents and consequences happen during this time that create a lot of red ones. We'll see that later on tonight. Because see, this is the era of the Dark Ages where horrific and murderous events took place by the hand of the Holy Roman Empire, Papal Rome. Satan's attack method, as we've seen throughout all of these weeks, First it was heresy, then it was persecution, and then it was, uh, for Pergamos, it was, uh, oh, why am I drawing a blank? Not false doctrine. What was it? What was it, Sam? Uh, wasn't it compromise? Compromise, thank you. And then last time with Thyatira, it was advance. This time, pff, goodness, the enemy cracked the code. He figured out what works. And so instead of retreating, no, the attack method is to keep advancing. Because as I've said before, I'll say it again. You give Satan an inch, he's going to take a yard. Crack open that door just an inch, he's going to break the doors off the hinges. And he's not just going to stop once he has his way. No, he's going to keep going until there's nothing left of you. You see, he keeps pressing harder on all fronts. Heresy, persecution, and compromise. Oh, there it is. But here's a twist, though. Because since he's married the church with pagan Rome... 
And this is where we start to see during this time in history the lines between what is genuinely biblical, what is genuinely Christian. We see those lines blurred, and now it's this kind of strange abomination conglomeration. Now all of this stuff is happening, but it's happening and being done in the name of Christ. It's being done in the name of Christianity. And we're going to see that in just a few minutes. How Satan was able to use that and to twist it and to deceive people even to this very day. This very day. So the commendation. He says there was still some good in them that they received and heard and that it needed to be strengthened. More on that in a bit, but take a look again at verse 1. And under the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I've mentioned before, every single letter that John writes to a church, it's an introduction to that church about something, a character trait or a character quality of himself that that church needed to hear. Seven spirits and seven stars. What is that? Well, if we want to do some cross-referencing, comparing Scripture to Scripture, flip over to chapter 1. And God will tell us what they are. Look at verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the, what? angels of the seven churches and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches for some reason and i don't know if it's just simply as a watchman or as a as a uh, representative between god and what's going on here even though god sees everything for some reason god has chosen to represent all seven periods of church <laughs> church history sorry with angels. There's an angel. There's a messenger, if you will, because every single time an angel shows up in the Bible, he always has a message to convey. And so for some reason, God has chosen to allow these seven angels to be as representatives, almost as though they are messengers to God about what's going on during this time in church history. That's what they are. So we get what the, the seven stars are. They are His angels. And you can see that and trace that all throughout Scripture. Stars are a picture of the angels. And not only that, flip over to... Or actually, no, we're in chapter 1. Look at verse 4. I need to flip back. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from Him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before His throne. Okay, so these seven spirits are before His throne. We get that. Turn over to chapter 5. They're before His throne. And I beheld, verse 6, And lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a, what? As it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven, what? Spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. So they're His eyes. His eyes, the all-seeing, all-piercing, all-penetrating eyes. The eyes that are as a flame of fire. Hmm. That see everything. They don't miss a lick. God sees what's going on here. So you have the seven stars, which are angels or messengers. And you have the seven spirits, which are His eyes. 
messengers and eyes. You know what I find fascinating, especially as it pertains to this time of church history, 1080 to 1500 AD? There's a lot of false messengers going around during this time and, and a lot of false eyewitness accounts of what really happened during this time in history. Your textbooks are proof of that. When you open them up and you read about the Crusades and the Inquisitions and hear that it was done in the name of Christianity. That is a false eyewitness. That is a false message going on here. Christ is writing this letter to introduce this church saying that he knows exactly what's going on. He's not fooled by it at all. And because we have his word, we know that we don't have to be fooled by it either. And although we are no angels, you and I do have a message, do we not? We do. Sammy, what does Hebrews 1.7 say? And of the angels he saith, who maketh his angels spirits, and his ministers a flame of fire. His ministers are a flame of fire. We're no angels, but we do have a message to minister. We have a message to share. You see, when someone, when a boy or a girl or a man or a woman says in their heart, God, I am willing to do whatever you want me to do. I'm willing to go wherever you want me to go. I'm willing to say whatever you want me to say. He lights that candle, and then he puts that candle to the test, and then he gives you a song in your heart. He gives you a message in your heart that needs to be ministered, that needs to be preached and taught. And then you start seeing, just as Sammy read, God makes his ministers a flame of fire. You see, now your candle goes from a candle to a flame. There's growth. How did God provide light during the dark ages? We just read it. But he doesn't end there. More later. Back on your outline. Second bullet point under the commendation. We see in verse 4 that there was a remnant of believers that remained undefiled. Talked about that last time. No matter how dark things got, no matter how many people gave in, God always has a faithful remnant who would not, in verse 4, they have not defiled their garments, for they shall walk with me in white. They're pure. They're holy. They're undefiled by the harlot church that's going around proclaiming things in the name of Christ that are not biblical. For they are worthy. And that's it for the commendation. They had some things that needed to be strengthened, and there was a remnant of believers that were around that didn't bow the knee to Baal. It didn't bow the knee to this false church. Now we get to the condemnation. Look again at verse 1. He says, I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest and art dead. Guys, is a church an organization? No, it is not. You know what a church is? According to Ephesians chapter 5, it is the body of Jesus Christ. That makes us a living organism. Something that is alive. That is what we should be. Lively. Lively stones, the Bible calls it in 1 Peter. But yet these guys had a name that they lived. They had a name of church. They had a name as though they were a body of the Christ, but they were dead. On your outline, they had a name that represented life, but in reality, they were dead. 
And not only that, verse 2, he says again, Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. You see, the good that they did have was about to die, and their works were not perfect before God. So something that's interesting, and if you want to take notes, if you guys are history nuts and nerds like myself, I studied out historical Sardis. Because remember, all seven of these church letters, they don't just represent periods of time of the church. They were actually seven historical cities during the time of 90 AD in Asia Minor. Sardis was a real city. Sardis was a city that was located on a mountain. And the people there were so sure and so confident that it was impregnable. It couldn't be overthrown by any enemy forces whatsoever because it was on a mountain. You'd be able to see the enemy coming from a mile away. You always want the high ground in a military campaign, in a military strategy. You always want the high ground so that you can see all around you where the enemy forces are coming from. You know what's funny about historical Sardis, the city? Twice in its history was it overrun and taken over by an enemy force. Not once, twice. The enemy snuck in because on both occasions, the person keeping watch... What does verse 2 say again? Be... Oh, be watchful and strengthen the things which remain. The person who was keeping watch fell asleep at his post and Sardis was overrun by the enemy. You know something? In our walk with God, the same thing happens. We might think that we're too good to fail. We might think that we're too big and we're too solid in our walk that no, no sin's going to touch me. Nothing's going to shake my foundation. Nothing's going to cause me to slip in my walk with Christ. And just when you start thinking that, that's when the enemy is going to send something your way to take you out if you're not watching, if you're not remaining humble. That's what God's warning this church about. It's what He's warning us about. We need to be careful for that. So some significant historical events during this time period. This period is often referred to as the midnight of the Dark Ages. The night is darkest just before the dawn, and the dawn is coming as we'll see next week. During this time, you see this increase of Asian culture, Hinduism, and Muslim beliefs and thought processes just muddying down the waters of what the Catholic Church was already doing during this time. Now people who didn't have a Bible in their hands were becoming even more separated from what the truth of the Gospel was. Not only that, we see the start of the Renaissance period happening. More on that next week. As we touched on before in Thyatira, the bubonic plague starts reaching its peak and kills millions of people. And this next point is very interesting. Roman religious councils totally replaced the authority of the Bible, and the Roman Catholic Church completely controlled the world through religion. That is not hyperbole. When I say that the Roman Catholic Church controlled the entire world, literally speaking, that's what it was. Because as we talked about last week, when, you're st when your religion becomes a state religion, you control the armies, which also means you control the historians. You control what gets recorded down and written down for all of history. You have complete and utter control over that. But it's funny, Sammy brought up a good question on Sunday. You know, the book of Acts, what church period did that, come, did that take place in? 
And this is something that we actually kind of touch on in the adult church history class where, during that introduction. The book of Acts is very, very unique. It kind of serves as this parenthesis period between the Gospels and the beginning of church history with the Ephesus church age. Church period, sorry. Acts is this parenthesis period where we kind of get the, the early church history uh, things that happen during early church history. That's where we find out all of these things and what goes on with Paul and Peter going from the Jews to the Gentiles, going from Jerusalem to Antioch, and there's so many things that are significant. But you know what else is unique about the book of Acts? God has certain words and phrases that show up in that book that serve as a clue, if you would, for help us understand and to look at church history and be like, huh, that's interesting. You know what word shows up again and again and again in the book of Acts? Councils. No, not council as in I'm seeking counsel on a matter. No, a council as in a group of religious scholars and theologians, people who think they know the answers to everything, they get together and what you end up finding every single time in the book of Acts, whenever that occurs, they are getting together and they are conspiring against God's people. Mark it down. Every time the word council shows up in the Bible, it is always negative against God and against God's people. And God uses that word as a launching pad, as a little inside scoop, if you would, for us to see when we look at history, huh, this word council doesn't just go away. In fact, there are many councils all throughout history, and a lot of them, when I compare what the Bible says, a lot of these councils seem to go contrary to what God says in His word. And that's what's going on here. Rome continues to release council after council after council. We looked at one in Pergamos, the Council of Nicaea. Council of Trent is a very familiar one for those of you who know history. And then next, the events of the Crusades, the Spanish Inquisitions, the evasions of Saladin, he was an Egyptian sultan, and Genghis Khan. This was a bloody, bloody, bloody time. In American history, American history, <laughs> America started in 1200 A.D. No, <laughs> I know nothing about history. So a couple, of, and again, this is just a very scatter shot. We don't even take a deep dive into this stuff in the adult church history class. This is just for you guys to be able, if you guys want to look this up, or if someone is talking to you about the Crusades, because. <sighs> Have any of you guys ever heard the argument? Have you ever gotten into an argument with somebody as far as why they are an atheist or why they are agnostic? They hate Christianity or they hate all religion because all religion just pre produces more wars and more murder. Have you guys ever heard that? Or the reason why they don't want to get saved or the reason why they don't want to convert to Christianity is because they look at the history of Christianity and they just see nothing but bloodshed. They look at all the land that Christians have conquered in the name of Christ. They look at all the people that Christians have killed throughout history. Have you guys ever heard that? If not, you certainly will in a college university campus, if God so leads you to go to college. I'll touch on that in another point, weeks later. The only problem is, these crusades, these inquisitions, this bloodshed had absolutely nothing at all to do with biblical, Bible-believing Christians. It was all Rome. It was all Rome. So people who use that as an excuse, man, I agree with them. 
I wouldn't want to join any kind of a cult or a denomination or a religion that caused that much bloodshed. Because that's all religion does breed, is just war and bloodshed. That is the history of that. Religion put my Savior on the cross. That's why Jesus Christ isn't interested in religion. He's interested in what? A relationship. That's the key. So on your outline, many refuse to submit to the words of God because of these crusades. Christians conquered over Bible believers, Muslims, and any nonconformist people in the name of God. Now, here's the thing. There are a ton, a ton of crusades that went on throughout this period. The seven that we have listed here, we highlight because these were the seven crusades where the Catholic Church tried to take over Jerusalem. Seven. We're not going to take the time to look at them. You can check those out later. But you can see sometimes they captured it, but sometimes they lost it. Sometimes they try to take it again, and they failed. And you got to ask yourself, all of these times, all of these fights, all of these wars, why on earth would soldiers continue to sign up for this sort of a thing? Well, in one of the many councils, you would see a doctrine come up called... Plenary indulgences. Does anybody know what this means? Sammy? Wasn't it when you like paid the like pre the people like the Roman Catholic Church to like get to heaven? Indulgences is one of them. Yes, that's so. It's very very similar with that. In this case specifically, it was the priest or the priest general, priest king, priest pope, they were all one and the same. They would go up to their soldiers and say, hey, you sign up for our army to go take back the holy land in the name of Jesus? You got yourself a ticket into heaven. I decreed it. I've prayed it. I will make sure that you get a ticket into heaven no matter what you have to do in order to get the holy land back for us. You had a guaranteed spot in there. Because I'm the man of God. I'm the Nicolaitan. Although they wouldn't call themselves that. I can pray you into heaven. doesn't matter what you do. You're forgiven. All of your sins in the future, you're forgiven. Just get us back into the Holy Land. It was a get into heaven free card. Get out of hell free card. How is it that people again and again after failed opportunity after failed opportunity would continue to sign up for this kind of garbage? Well, because of that. Just by signing up, free ticket in, no matter what you did. Turn over your next page on the back here. Now, why the Holy Land and why do we settle on these seven these seven key areas, or these seven key uh, crusades to try to take back Jerusalem. And point number two, Rome claimed three reasons for these crusades. Number one, they wanted to conquer and assume the Holy Land. And again, they said they were doing this all in the name for Jesus. Number two, they wanted to stop the spread of the Islamic religion. That's why you see a lot of bloodshed going on back and forth there. The whole controversy between quote-unquote Christians and Muslims goes back to this time frame. Again, unfortunately, it has nothing to do with true Bible-believing Christians. And then number three, they claim that the reason for the crusade was to unite the East and the West branches of Catholicism. 
But, 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 what Satan really wanted to do was to secure control of Jerusalem and wipe out all adversaries to establish the throne of the Antichrist. That's what's going on. This is what absolutely key and absolutely critical to our understanding of church history. The entire point of us going over a study like this, especially as it pertains to end times, because that's what the whole goal of this entire study is of Revelation, not just to look at church history. We want to see what does the Bible have to say about the end times. Why this is key is because church history allows us to take the curtain in Wizard of Oz fashion and pull back the curtain and see what's really going on behind the scenes. What is really going on that my history book won't tell me? Because this is absolutely critical. When we understand this, it helps us to understand what time it is right now and to know just how busy we got to get going. This entire ordeal was all so that Satan could get control of Jerusalem to establish the Antichrist on the throne and declare himself as God. Something in the book of Daniel that is called the abomination of desolation. And Satan knows that once he gets his man in there, that's it. It's game over until God comes back and takes his place back by force. Everything that goes on right now, yes, even in Russia and Ukraine, because Russia is known as the king of the north as you study the book of Daniel out. They're not just going to stop in Ukraine. They're going to work their way down to the south towards Jerusalem. Then you also have the king of the east, China. It's a big thing going on over there in the end time study with the book of Ezekiel. And then you have the west and the south with Iran. All of this stuff that's going on right now in Europe, in Asia, and specifically the Middle East throughout the centuries, it's all connected. Satan is moving and advancing. And you know what? It's like this in our life, too, in a very smaller sense. It can be so easy for us to get tripped up on, he said this to me, she said that about me. It can get so easy to get tripped up into fighting flesh with flesh, thinking that we are our enemy. And we're reminded in Ephesians chapter 6, we wrestle not against what? Flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against spiritual wickedness in high places. We can get so distracted on the things that are going on on earth that we don't pull the curtain back and see what's really going on here. What's the spirit and the influence behind this attack? Because it's all just serving as a smokescreen to get me distracted so that I'm not being used of God. And that's exactly what's going on here. This has absolutely nothing to do with the fact of, oh, well, people did this in the name of Christianity, so I don't want anything to do with Christians. No, no, no. If Satan can keep us busy arguing that, then he just slips his way through the back door to try to actually achieve his goal of getting closer and closer to Jerusalem. That's the key. We can be so easy for us to get mad in this day and age, we need to learn to depersonalize spiritual warfare. Somebody offends you in here? Okay, stop. Take a step back and think, is it really worth me getting upset with them? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least one person thinks so. <laughs> is it really worth getting upset with them, or do I need to stop and think, hmm, I bet this is an attack from Satan just to get me distracted and to get me thinking vain imaginations so that I lose temperance 
and lose control over my emotions and my faculties and my members and I then start saying something that's not really sober-minded. And now causes a greater rift and it causes a greater divide within the youth ministry and now we as a whole youth ministry aren't getting anything done because of this rift. We got to start looking at things from that perspective and seeing what Satan's doing behind the scene. So not only was that the case, but back on your outline, and I love this, there's a beautiful verse in Genesis 50, I believe it's verse 20, where Joseph, after what happened with his brothers, he says, hey, what Satan intended for evil, God meant for good. Even though Satan is using all of this for his own evil gains, God was able to take it and do something spectacular with it. He used the Crusades to weaken the Roman Catholic Church's grip on power to usher in the Reformation period of 1517. I'll touch more on that next week. But I'm telling you, Caleb, what position are you in football? Bench. What? Bench. Bench? <laughs> All right. What is the primary? What is the primary goal? What is the primary goal of a blocker? To block. To block for what end purpose? Not letting the quarterback get tackled or the play get thrown down the drain. That's sort of the goal. That's one aspect of it. But what about if you're playing? Uh, what if you're uh, having a running play? Then it's Quarter, the QB gives it off to the running back. What's your goal as a blocker? What way does the running back go? <laughs> the point of a blocker in football is to block so that the running back or the QB can take the ball into the end zone. The reformers in the Reformation period, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Ulrich Zwigli, John Knox, men you've all studied in school, a lot of them had a lot of messed up doctrine. But you know what God used them for? To serve as the blocker. So that Bible believers could take the vision from the Lord and run therewith. They ran around everything that was going on during the Reformation period where the Catholic Church is now so busy debating the Reformers that true Bible believers were able to get the Bible back into the hands of the common men and run it into the end zone. More on that next week. But it wouldn't have happened if it had not been for all of the red ones suffering at the hands of, of Rome during the Crusades. So I got to ask you, what's distracted you this week from what really matters? Have you allowed Satan to get in, to distract you from the big picture, from running into the end zone, to maybe put out the flame? Next point. We see during this time that Bible believers were severely persecuted and tortured and murdered by the millions. Approximately 50 million just in a 500 year span. This is what's known as the golden age of papal or papal power. So this also brings us to the time of the Inquisitions. I have a quote here from Fox's Book of Martyrs. Here's the crime. You know what the crime is? You know what the principal accusation, why the, why the Catholic Church initiated the Inquisitions? 
The principal accusation against those who are subject to this tribunal is heresy. That's what your history books will tell you too, that the Christians were just killing the heretics. Here's their definition of heresy though, which comprises all that is spoken or written against any of the articles of the creed or the traditions of the Roman church. Have an opinion that differs from the established order? You're guilty in their eyes. The Inquisition likewise takes cognizance of such who read the Bible in the common language. You know what a common language is? It's the language that everybody speaks. What language does everybody, by and large, speak today? <coughs> Do you read the Bible in that language? Yes. If this was going on today, you're guilty. You're guilty. Instead of reading Fox's Book of Martyrs, I decided to get a very tiny book that goes through all of this. This book is called Martyr's Mirror. Loaded with stories of people who suffered for their faith. Page one. Just kidding. Hmm. Maybe. Uh, let's see. Let's. I have a note here. Read the trial by red hot iron. Oh, here it is. This is the Inquisitions. Maybe something that your history books leave out. If a person charged with holding sentiments contrary to the doctrine of the Roman Church, from fear of a cruel death, denied it. The accused was delivered into the hands and custody of a priest who was to find out the truth. Before making the trial, then commonly called the ordeal, they together spent three days ostensibly in fasting and prayer. Oh, these great priests. This done, they went together to the church where the priest, in his uh, sacerdotal attire, placed himself in front of the altar upon which he laid a piece of iron. First chanting the song of the three children in the fiery furnace, Praise the Lord, all his works. Again, in the name of Christ, they're doing this. And then pronouncing a blessing over the altar. And the fire in which the iron was to be laid, the iron, while heating on the coals, was repeatedly sprinkled with holy water. And in the meantime, mass was read. So it's a whole religious ceremony. It's a church service. When the priest took the wafer into his hand, he adjured the accused, people who believe what you and I believe, in other words, praying meanwhile ostensibly to God that by his righteousness he would discover the truth of the matter, using among other these words, the priest's prayer over the red-hot iron. Lord God, we pray thee that thou wouldest clearly manifest the truth in this thy servant. Thou, O God, who hast in former times done great and wonderful signs by fire among thy people. Hmm, they're talking about the Bible. And he would go on to talk about how this fire and how God would bless these, this, this red-hot iron. And the iron was given into the hand of the accused. This having been said, the flaming iron was given into the hand of the accused, who had to carry it nine paces. The hand was then closed, wrapped, or closely wrapped up with cloth by the priest and sealed for three days, at the end of which it was inspected. If it was wounded, the accused was judged to be guilty. If not, he was acquitted. Summary. You say something, 
against the Catholic Church back then, or if you're accused of saying something against the Catholic Church back then, they get this ritualistic ceremony, they get the red-hot iron, they put it in your hand, and you have to walk nine steps. They bandage your hand for three days. And if three days your hand is damaged, you were guilty. Hmm. That seems like a fair trial. Hmm. Rules of the Inquisitors. Ah, rule number one. It is not permitted or advisable to dispute concerning the faith in the presence of the laity. Who's the laity again? Common people. So in other words, if priests were going to argue and dispute or and have a debate with you over the Bible, they were not to do it in front of others, lest you got persuaded. No one is to be regarded as converted if he will not accuse all those whom he knows to be such as he is. So are you a Bible believer? Are you a Christian? You're not going to be found not guilty. You're not going to be letting a free pass to go unless you don't start naming names of your brothers and sisters in Christ. These are the rules that the Inquisitors had to follow. After anyone is delivered to the secular judge, great care must be exercised that he be not allowed to prove his innocence or show his harmlessness before the people. For if he is put to death, the people will take offense. And if he is discharged, the Catholic faith will be endangered. In other words, they can't let you before the people to see just how innocent and harmless you really truly are. They have to keep this hush-hush, lest the other people see it and get mad. have to keep everything hush-hush, keep it quiet. The thought is not to be entertained of overcoming the heretics, that's you and I, by the way, by skill of learning or knowledge of the scriptures, since the learned men are much sooner confounded by them. In other words, you and I with our Bibles, what they're saying here, we're wiser than the best of their priests. That's why they didn't want any of you back then to debate them because they knew we'd put them to shame because that's what they were doing back then. The result of which is that the heretics that the heretics are then still more confirmed and encouraged. It would inspire the rest of you to keep holding fast to your Bibles, seeing they thus outwit even those who are educated. Remember what they said about Peter and the disciples in Acts chapter 4? These unlearned and ignorant men, they've turned the world upside down. That's what common people can do when they have a common Bible and they believe it. When a flame, when a candle gets turned into a flame. Fire's growing. The fire's growing. Man. Who are these people? Who are these guys that were during this time? You had the Albigenses, the Bulgarian, the Waldenses. We looked at some of these guys. Cathari, Petrobusians, Arnoldists, Hussites, Henricians, New Manichaeans, Lollards. You know what the Lollards were persecuted for? They were persecuted for the heinous and despicable and disgusting crime of repeating the Bible back from memory. Now you think about that. The next time you struggle with your memory verses for discipleship. Our brothers and sisters who went before us were persecuted for their lives for memorizing the Word of God.
the Lollards. And they didn't do it for an assignment. That's who the Lollards were. And the Anabaptists, they were all branded as heretics by the Roman Catholic Church. But here's the thing, though. They were never part of the Roman Catholic Church. The whole thing with the Protestant Reformation is that they wanted to reform the Catholic Church. That's why some of those reformers had messed up doctrines. These guys were never a part of the Catholic Church. They were always on the outside preaching against Rome. That's how you tell the difference. That's where the true line of Bible believers comes from. And again, we can read stories of the persecutions about these people found in different books. Man, you know what's interesting, you guys, in Revelation 3? Look at verse 2 again. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain. These guys are the ones strengthening the things which remain before it's about to die. Because I'm telling you guys, during this time in church history, it came this close came this close to not existing anymore. Christianity being wiped out. You know what they did? They spoke out. They didn't just have a message. They weren't just a minister with a message. They spoke out because of the great love they had for Jesus. Song of Solomon 8.6 It's alright. Psalm the Psalm in 8.6 Set me as a seal upon thy heart, as a seal upon thine arm. For love is strong as death, and jealousy is cruel as the grave. The coals thereof are coals of fire, which hath a most vehement flame. A most vehement flame. Starts with a candle. Candle of willingness. And when that willingness is tested, and you have a message that you minister to others, you become a flame. But then as you continue to be tested, as you continue to be tried, that flame turns into a most vehement flame because you're not just doing it because you have to. You're doing it because you have a love for the Lord Jesus Christ that is as strong as death, Solomon says. As strong as death. Death is concrete. Death is sure. There's no wavering in death. It happens. You have a love for the Lord Jesus Christ that's as strong as death. That means you're not going to waver. No matter what persecution is thrown your way, no matter what obstacles are in front of you, you're not going to waver. And when that happens, man, your light, your flame, it's going to become a most vehement, a large, a violent flame. That's what's going on here. You know an interesting uh, guy by the name of John Wycliffe? I think sometimes they put an E on it. John Wycliffe, he was the founder of the Lollards. He had this to say about the Bible. If God's word is the life of the world, and every word of God is the life of the human soul, how, many, or how may any antichrist for dread of God take it away from us that be Christian men? and thus to suffer the people to die for hunger and heresy and blasphemy of men's law that corrupteth and slayeth the soul. This was a man whose heart was set on fire for God. This was a man whose love for God was a most vehement flame. And he's saying things like this, and people are starting to see this as they look at what Rome is doing with these, these atrocious crusades and inquisitions. They're like, how can this be the love of God 
when these guys are the ones suffering for it, and yet they still hold fast to their faith. People are starting to discern the difference. They're starting to discern dark from light because of people like this. You know what's interesting about John Wycliffe? He translated the first Bible ever into the English language, which started to become a language during this time in history. It was received by and massively given out to the common people. It was said from his Bible that people would work a hard day's work. They'd get up at 5 a.m. and they'd work a long day, 12-hour days, and then they would come home. All of them, they'd get the family, they'd get the whole neighborhood together over Wycliffe's Bible and they would start to read it. And before they knew it, it was 5 a.m. again. And they had to go back out to work. But they didn't care because they had the Word of God the entrance of thy words and it gave them light and it gave them a fire. It lit their candle in their soul and that fire grew to a flame and then a most vehement flame. And they'd go back to work and not be tired. There were stories of that during this time. The thought of sleep never once occurred to them. He died in 1384. You want to mark this down because in 1401, the council of Constance ordered they were so angry at this man. They were so angry at what he did and the fire that he started in Europe that this council, they ordered his bones to be dug up, to be ground to powder. Think about the psychotic reasoning behind that. To take a dead man, exhume his bones, and then grind him to powder, and then to take that and cast it into the Severn River. You know where the Severn River leads? Leads to the Narrow Seas. You know where the Narrow Seas lead? There's a channel that goes out to the Atlantic Ocean. And in a metaphorical, dare I say prophetic sense, his ashes and the work that he did, the fire that he started, would start to spread across the sea. Hmm. That's John Wycliffe. Where are we at in your outline? Is it the correction? Are we wrapping this up? Yeah. The correction. Revelation 3. We already looked at these verses already. He says, be watchful. Strengthen the little truth that they had. That's what he corrected them to do. That's what he challenged them to do. And that's what he's challenging us to do. If, if, if you're in here, and man, this always was like me during this time of year, where it's towards the end of the year and I'm just feeling dead. I'm feeling hit. I'm so ready for camp to come. I was never really, springtime was always a time where like, oh, just the winter months. I'm just feeling down from the year and it seems like no one's wanting to come to church. And I felt dead, to be honest with you, during this time of year. I needed to be watchful and I needed to strengthen the things that remained and I needed to finish out the year well. So if that's you in here, be watchful and strengthen the things that remain. Let your fire grow. That's what they had to do. They had to remember the truth that they heard and received and they had to hold fast to it. And if there was something they were involved in, they needed to repent so that they can overcome. God, in an incredible move, used the failure of the Crusades and the horror of the Inquisitions to weaken the position of Papal Rome, and everyone across the entire globe was starting to see that at this point. 
This made way for the Reformation movement to take place from within her corrupt system. And this also gave God's few remnant the freedom to spread the gospel and circulate the scriptures. One last note on John Wycliffe. You know what his nickname is in history? What many people refer to him as? The Son of the Morning Star. Why does that sound familiar? God's commendation and his correction to the Thyatira church at the start of, dark ages, of the Dark Ages. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. Keep that in mind. And I will give him the morning star. Remember what I said about his ashes going into the Atlantic Ocean and traveling westward? Think about what's coming up next in history after 1500 A.D. I will give him the morning star. Again, people who don't see church history through the lens of the Bible like we're going through, they attribute his name as the son of the morning star, and they don't even realize they're quoting scripture. That's his nickname. Huh. Coincidence, I'm sure. One last guy that's worth mentioning. Man by the name of William Tyndale. T-Y-N-D-A-L-E. He picked up where Wycliffe left off. He took Wycliffe's Bible and perfected it more as the English language continued to develop. He cared very much about the scriptures being back in the hands of common, ordinary, everyday individuals like you and me. Man, I like this guy. You know why? He got into this argument with this priest. And he says, I defy the Pope and all his laws. And if God spare my life ere many years, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow to know more of the scriptures than you. That was William Tyndale in response to a priest stating his preference for the Pope's laws, the councils above the word of God. If God spare my life ere many years, I will cause a boy, a common farm boy, to know the scriptures and to be wiser than the most educated religious leaders of its day. That same power rests in you if you hold fast to this book and believe it, not as, it, not as the words of men, but as it is in truth, the words of God. You can turn your schools upside down. You can transform this entire world. You can completely and utterly change the course of human history. I'm not just saying that. I believe it, and it's what I'm raising my boys to do. I pray that all the time when we're, going to, when we're putting them to bed. God can do that to you if you just believe it. If you just believe this book and do what it says, and you let that fire grow. Rome didn't like him too much. And as you can imagine, he died. They tied him to a post, and they're about ready to strangle him, and then after they strangled him, they were going to burn his body. What you're about to see are his last words ever, forever recorded in history. Right before he strangled, Lord, open the king of England's eyes the king of England not the king at the time of his death but as we're going to see next week 
God opened the king of England's eyes all right. And many of you, you're holding that king's book in your hand right now. God was working. And you see, he was strangled before being what? Hebrews 12, 28 and 29. Wherefore, we receiving the kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. Starts with a candle. God, I'm willing. I'll go wherever, I'll do whatever. And he's going to put that to the test. And if you stay faithful to that test, he's going to give you a message to share with people, and that candle's going to turn into a flame. And then that flame, as it continues to get tested, as it continues to fan, you're going to start doing things, not because you have to do it, but because of an intense and immense love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And that love is going to be as strong as death, and that flame is going to grow to a more vehement flame. And as you begin to serve God with reverence and holy fear, that fire is going to consume you. And it's not going to be you anymore. You will come to a moment of consecration, a point of no return, where after you make that decision, God, I am all in 100%, no matter what happens. That's when you become a consuming fire. And what does a consuming fire do? Spreads like what? Wildfire. So, the application for Bible believers. Who or what are you anchored to? You'll find out when the storms of persecution come, and boy, they will come. If you're not in a fight now, get ready for one, because it's coming your way. That's what 2 Timothy 3.12 says. But in the end, God wins. doesn't matter how much pressure the devil, the world, the flesh puts on us. God will be glorified. So make sure you find yourself on the right side with the Lord. And check out those verses later about being an overcomer in 1 John 4, 4 and Romans 8, 18. But here's the thing. Even if you're overcome by the enemy for all of your Christian life, God still wins because you're going to be with him in eternity forever. If tomorrow one of you in here decides that you are never going to come to church again, you're never going to read your Bibles again, but you know beyond a shadow of a doubt when you die, you're going to go and be in heaven for all of eternity. God still wins because Satan can't have your soul. But you will be in heaven for all of eternity and you will have nothing to your name, nothing to show for the life that God gave you, His life that He gave you. You will have nothing to show for all of eternity because you will have squandered your life living for self, dampening out the flame, dampening out the fire. Who are you bringing with you for all of eternity? What crowns are you going to lay before Him at His feet? Salvation is never the end of the story. It was never intended to be that way. We have a commission. As it was... Reminded me this week, Resurrection Sunday, man, praise the Lord. Death and hell were defeated forever. But that's not where the story ends. We were given a commission. We were given a mission to do and to fulfill. We need to be ministers of the flame of fire. So what are you prepared to do to shine your light during these dark ages? Last passage, turn over to Exodus 24. <coughs> 
Exodus 24. A candle to a flame, to a most vehement flame, to a consuming fire. Verse 17. And the sight of the glory of the Lord was like what? Devouring fire on the top of the mountain, the eyes of the children of Israel. And Moses went into the midst of the cloud. It can be a scary thing to wake up tomorrow morning and do your devotions. It can be scary to go spend time with God tomorrow. You might open up your Bible thinking that, okay, time for my new chapter, and God completely flips your world on its head. Moses saw that devouring fire, and he went into the cloud. He went into the fire and got close with God. And when he came back down, everybody saw there was something different about him. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? We have a testimony of history from these faithful men and women who shone their light, in some cases, quite literally, at a burning stake. That's what they did. Are you willing to do the same for your king? Let's pray.